Uh, the first week in Amos, we looked at the historical context of Amos in the 8th century. Uh, the split history of Israel and Judah, the call of God on the every man turned prophet. Uh, Amos was called to deliver a message to Israel from God. Then last week we saw uh, what kind of message it would be with the passage about the roaring of the lion, that metaphor of the coming judgment of God. Uh, Six pagan nations surrounding Israel were listed in the judgment oracles, Judah as well, and then culminating that list was Israel. The initial charge laid out last week was idolatry, sexual perversion, exploitation of the poor, and unjust practices extorting money from people. So this week, God through Amos is going to speak again to his rebellious people about why he's doing what he's doing. It seemed that the fundamental issue here was that they did not think that they could be judged. They did not think that it was possible Israel didn't think that they could potentially be judged by God. Their material prosperity that they were experiencing mixed with their correct chosen people philosophy of life was a blinding combination that made them feel above God's law. There's a medical condition that I've heard of. I looked it up again this week to make sure I knew what I was talking about. It sounds at first like it's a blessing but it's actually not. There's something called congenital insensitivity to pain. And it's a rare condition wherein a person cannot feel pain. Their sensitivity to being cut or being burned just isn't there. And you might hear that and think, wow, that would be awesome. Just imagine what it would be like to go through life and not ever have to feel that paper cut feel, you know? You just, you never, it never happens once. But thinking critically about that, would reveal that pain is actually a good thing in our lives. Imagine placing your hand on a burning hot stove or walking uh, in bare feet across broken glass and having no sensation of pain. Normally, you would instantly recoil, pull your hand back off of that hot stove and save yourself a, a worse burn than maybe you might receive if you just touched it for a second. But imagine what would happen if you left your hand there because you didn't know that it was hot. You would have to see blood. You would have to see burn marks, scars beginning to form. You would have untreated injuries and get infections that you otherwise might not have. Israel developed a congenital insensitivity to sin. Their hand was on the hot stove, but they did not recognize it. They believed they were impervious to the flame, and they were not responding to the pain of sin as God's normal method of recalibration. Thus, Amos was sent by God to uncover the truth of burn wounds and infection, the deep rot that had set in due to years of neglecting their hand sitting on top of that burning hot stove. And so I want to show you today, God has a deep purpose in everything he does. You'll see the necessity of judgment against his own people, and more specifics about why he is calling them out. And hopefully we see, I really hope this whole series you see this, people in Amos' day are really no different than us. There's a lot of similarities still. We can also be insensitive to the pain of sin, requiring a serious correction from God. So that's what we're going to look at today. Before we look at the text, would you pray with me?
Heavenly Father, we ask your, your guidance, your help, as we look at your word today, Lord. Apply something, Lord, written in the 8th century B.C. to 2021 today. Lord, only you can make this relevant. Lord, you can apply through your spirit to our hearts. And Lord, we ask you to do that today, to cut through and show us something in our lives that you would have us do differently because of your holiness, because of our relationship with you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'd invite you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Amos chapter 3. We're going to work through chapter 3 all the way through the beginning of chapter 4. Uh, the cat, or should we say from last week, the lion, was already let out of the bag. And so Israel is going to be judged by God. That's already known at this point. Um, now, in chapter 3, it's almost a defense of that judgment. So God puts it out there. Judgment's coming. And then what we're going to see now is sort of a, a, a let me explain to you because I don't think you understand why. And it's important, as you guys know, with, with kids, uh, it's important that they understand why the punishment's happening just as much as they understand that it's happening. So, because that's what really creates the lasting change. So, um, it's almost as if God, through Amos, is, is shaking them by the collar, saying, I know seriously, though, this is happening. There's really a judgment coming. Because I think there was an element of, nah, not us. Remember last week, not, that's for somebody else's lion. That's, that, that lion's not coming to eat me. That's coming to eat all the other bad nations, because we're good, right? We're chosen. So this was the struggle. The people, especially the wealthy, religious upper crust, could not grasp that they were the problem. Thus, we have chapter 3. So, Let's begin by reading Amos 3, 1 through 2. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Put a little chill on your spine, right? The first thing I want to uh, note today as we study this passage is, number one, if you've taken notes, and I hope you do, is the justification of the judgment. God is justifying his judgment. Now, remember, God does not ever have to justify himself to us, but there are times when to bring us along and to help us understand he does that. So remember, Amos is not the first prophet to ever speak in Israel. Elijah had come 100 years or so earlier. So Elijah and Elisha already happened at this point. There were minor reforms. We did a whole series, by the way, in case you're just a glutton for punishment. You can go on our website and find the whole Elijah series there from last year about this time. Um, Elijah, Elisha had already come through, but the people continued and persisted in their sin, obviously, because we're here today. So the only rationale is sort of a Job mentality of I think God's, it's like God's saying, I think you're going to need something to be taken from you before you really understand how serious your sin is. So Elijah came, he brought down fire on Mount Carmel, slaughtered the prophets of Baal, uh, prophesied the death of Jezebel, falling through the window, eaten by dogs. Crazy story, it all happened. However, his ministry was basically targeted to the leadership, the King Ahab. It, he was just pummeling King Ahab and Jezebel over and over. Elijah's message was return to Yahweh God, the worship of him, because it's right, because that's the right thing to do. Amos's message, a hundred years later, is God is going to burn this whole thing to the ground. Quite a different message. I think this is a healthy way right now, before we go further, to think about the discipline of the Lord in our lives. God often gives us frequent chances to repent of our sin in small ways before he ramps things up. It's always best, hear me, hear me now, 
It's always best to repent sooner than later because God will get your attention one way or another. I think if we look at verses 1 through 2, you'll see the basis for the judgment is the intimate knowledge God shares with his people. He says, hear this word, Yahweh has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family I brought out of Egypt. So God hearkens back again to the Exodus, reminds them, I'm your rescuer. We have a unique relationship. Then God says, you only have I known of all families of the earth. Now, I'm not going to push on this. It can get a little weird, but the Hebrew word in verse 2, when God says, you only have I known, I'll be vague on purpose, is the same word when it says, Adam knew his wife Eve and they bore a child. So that word in Hebrew lends its function to a double meaning on purpose, to intimate knowledge of one another. God is saying to his people, you are the only one I've known. I chose you like a man chooses his bride. This was supposed to be an exclusive relationship. The word of the covenant was supposed to be, I will be your God and you will be my people. And we know from a comparative analysis of the book of Hosea, the prophet Hosea, written at this same time, God compared Israel to an unfaithful prostitute who had run out on her husband. So once God said this, you only have I known, what does he say next? Therefore, I will punish you for your iniquities. That would have likely been a shocker for the audience. Remember, it was common for Israel to think that because of their special relationship with God, that they were exempted from punishment. But God flips the prophetic script and says, no, it's actually because of your special and unique relationship that I'm going to punish you. Maybe you've heard an old phrase. How many of you heard this phrase? Familiarity breeds contempt. You've heard that before, somebody? Okay, yes, a few of you have. In other words, you can become extremely used to something in your life, even something that you once thought was awesome, and begin over time to treat that thing you once thought was amazing with less and less and less respect over time because of how familiar it becomes. So example, classic example. Let's say for men, that beautiful girl that you did everything in your life possible to land, to get a date with, you pulled out all the stops, all right? You never, never before did you put mints in your mouth, but now you're brushing your teeth, okay? You're pulling everything you got, all your best game. You're opening doors, you're buying flowers. Smoothest and best behavior becomes a girlfriend, becomes a fiance, becomes a wife, becomes a mother. And then one day, you're watching All in the Family and you start calling her the old ball and chain or the old battle axe, okay? This is how things go. That one whom you once thought so highly of and you loved and treated with such respect, there's things got so familiar over time, now things are just kind of, eh, you know, eh, I got to ask the old ball and chain, you know, if I can go out to dinner tonight. What happened, right? That's not how it started. That, something happened. So that's what God is saying to his people. Hey, y'all got too comfortable around here. That's what God is saying. You got lax. You got a little too familiar with Almighty God. You're treating the sovereign of the universe like an old dish rag, and I'm not going to take it anymore. Everyone has a breaking point. You know that. But you ever think that God also has a breaking point? God has a time when even his patience can run thin. Remember this, church. 
with the privilege of knowing God intimately comes a responsibility to respect him and to obey him. God never intended a relationship with him to be the equivalent of a ticket to sin freely. So look, at, look with me. We're going to see verses 3 through 6. We're reading the prophetic genre. Reminder, we're in the prophecy. That means that you're going to see some literary devices coming up. So what you're going to see next is a series of rhetorical questions. All right, look at verse 3. Amos is using these. Do two walk together unless they've agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in the snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? So we look at those rhetorical questions. Do you feel like you're being led somewhere with that line of questioning? It's like you're on the stand and a really good lawyer is just kind of moving you somewhere and you know it. Verse 3, do two walk together unless they've agreed to meet? I think we can all agree that that answer is no. In case you don't believe me, just go up to somebody at the mall and start walking next to them. Same speed. If they start speeding up, you go with them. If they start slowing down, you slow down with them. I guarantee you it'll prove this is true. Hey, what are, we, what are you doing? Are you following me? That, that's going to happen. You don't walk beside someone unless you've previously agreed that that's going to happen. Try it in your car, too, on the way home. Just stay in somebody's, just parallel with them. Kind of look at them, wink at them, maybe. See what happens. Yeah. It's, it's weird. That's right. So scripture was true, right? Verse 4, does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Now, this is actually really cool. Uh, people at this time, we're soft. We know it. Um, people in this time had experience with wild animals, and it was just a part of their life. You had a healthy fear of lions and tigers and bears. But uh, we know that lions are different hunters than, than like dogs, for example. Dogs are loud hunters. Uh, they bark while they're hunting. It's, a, it's an experience. You know, they're making lots of noise. Lions don't do that. They're, they're very quiet. And then right before they go for the big pounce, they let out this terrible shriek. Now, why do they do that? I'm no zoo zoologist, but I can read like anybody else. Why they do that is because there's this thing in predator and prey where the prey animals freeze when they hear this sound. They hear that, that sound, that terrible sound of the lion coming, and they, for about two seconds, they do a deer-in-the-headlights move, and that gives the lion a couple extra seconds to go and get that fast animal. So the, the roar of the lion is a sign something bad is happening. Okay, So don't hear that and think, oh, that's cute. No, that's really bad. That's a sign something bad is happening. Verse 5, these, these are easy. Does a bird fall on the earth when there's no snare? No. Um, when's the last time you were watching a bird fly? You just, it doesn't happen very often, right? Uh, does a trap spring up when there's no prey? No, no. Are people in a city unafraid when the trumpet blows? No, that means the enemy's coming. Uh, does disaster come unless the Lord has done it? No, no other God is causing judgment or disaster to fall a city. So why all these rhetorical questions? God is saying to Israel, pay attention. Everything in this world happens for a reason. There's purpose to why things happen. Nothing is random. Here's, a good, here's just good, good advice in general. There's no such thing as luck for Christians. Not when there's a sovereign God. Okay? God says, I'm behind everything that happens, whether you perceive it to be rainbows and sunshine or whether you perceive it to be disaster. I am sovereign. Everything happens because I cause it, permit it, allow it. One way or the other. Verse 7 through 8 continues. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servant, 
the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Amos is saying, look, I got to say what I'm saying. You see what's happening? God's doing this. This is happening, guys. It's happening. So Amos is standing up before the people. God has told me this. I'm telling you, this is happening. The lion that roars right before he takes its prey, here's the sound. It's happening right here through my prophecy. So that's the climax of that diatribe. The lion has roared. We've seen the justification of judgment. So now we're going to look at number two, the aim of the attack. The aim of the attack. So we're going to look at verses 9 through 15. We're going to see some specific judgments of the Lord. Let's just go ahead and read this, all of it. So, verse 9, Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt, and say, Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria, and see the great tumults within her, and the oppressed in her midst. You might want to underline that word. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. That word means fortresses, by the way. Verse 11, Therefore thus says the Lord, An adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, underline that, altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. All right, summary time. Tell everybody, tell them up north, tell them down south, I'm coming. Look at Samaria, look at the oppression. They've stolen from their people regularly. They've hoarded the treasures of their people in the fortresses. Well, I'm about to break the fortresses and plunder you, Israel, for what you have taken from others will be taken from you. That's what God is saying. Verse 12, one of the most powerful word pictures you'll see in any prophet. We're in this lion theme. Do you sense a lion theme throughout Amos? Uh, There was a practice in these days when... Uh, if you were a shepherd, a hired shepherd over a flock. You know, they had frauds back then, just like we have frauds today that try to cheat and they're phony. All right, so there were scammers back then. One of the, a shepherd scam that they would run all the time is the shepherd would be out with the flock and he'd take one shepherd or one sheep and he'd go sell it while he was out. And then he'd come back to the, to the owner of the flock and say, man, it was crazy. A lion came. I barely made it out. And they stole one of your sheep. I tried everything I could. Anyway, and so then he would leave and pocket the money from the sheep that he stole. So what a developed practice was, was the owner would say, oh, really? Interesting. Lion attack? But it was pretty bloody, huh? But it's pretty serious. Why don't you bring me back one of those little legs of, the, of my sheep that they got, and then we'll see if there really was a lion attack. You follow what's happening here? So in this, um, God is basically saying, Here's how you're going to get rescued, Israel. I'm going to rescue the same way that one of those sheep gets rescued and brought back. Well, how rescued is that? 
If you bring an ear back, that's not very rescued. That's another way to say you're going to get utterly destroyed. Only thing that's going to be left is pieces. And in fact, he goes a little further and he applies it to them and says, uh, really, it's, it's even worse than that. It's what's going to be brought back. And he kind of digs in here with a little sarcasm, uh, a swipe at their lush lifestyle, uh, lifestyle, saying that instead of an ear being brought back, it's going to be a corner of your fancy couch. That's the only thing that's going to make it back. Your big king-size bed, that's the only thing that's going to be brought back. That's kind of like saying the enemy is going to destroy you and all that's going to be left are the hubcaps on your Rolls Royce. So begin uh, to remind you that the Assyrian Empire is the one we know historically that would bring this destruction. The Lord used a pagan nation to judge his own people savagely. And so we know now the fortresses of Samaria, the military, are target number one. Well, there's another target that he mentions in these verses. False worship of the temple system. That was target number two. He says, On that day I punish Israel for his transgressions. I will punish the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. Now, in the temple in Jerusalem, when they built it, there was an altar of burnt offerings, and it had these little horn-like projectiles. They were design features, but they were these little horn-like projectiles that went off the corners of the altar of burnt offerings. Eventually, it became a place of asylum for people. This developed into this, where if you were fleeing someone who was trying to uh, hunt you down, you know, for, I don't know, whatever reason, bounty hunter reasons or something, but someone was, was trying to get you, if you made it to the horns of the altar in the temple and you grabbed onto those horns, you were safe. This is just one of those practices. And so it was like a refuge or an asylum seeker place. Well, when the kingdom split under uh, the, the split between north and south, Jeroboam went north. He decided to set up little false temples all over because I don't know if you remember this back in 1 Kings, but the idea was he didn't want people getting all sentimental and going down south to the, to the real temple in, in Jerusalem. And so he thought, well, I don't want them going down there thinking that this is the real temple. We'll build our own temples up here in the north. And so they built one at Bethel, and they built one at Samaria, and all the way up to the top. Well, they would make their little copycat horns of the altar as well. And God says, because of your false worship, I'm going to destroy this temple to the point that the horns of the altar are going to be cut off. Now, what is God saying when he says that? There's going to be no place to seek refuge or asylum. The one place in all of the land that you think you can run if you're being hunted down and be safe, that's going to be cut off, and that's not going to exist the third attack we see is going to be on the wealthy elite. The wealthy elite. If you look at verse 15, he says, I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end. The Lord says, I'm going to put a crack right down the middle of your golden toilet seat. It's going to be beautiful. You don't have to be a scholar to understand what, these, what this verse means, the fancy fat cats of Israel who had acquired their wealth by strong-arming the poor, who had built sprawling estates and second and third houses coated in ivory through theft and deceit and loopholes and tax evasion and unjust fines and slave labor, would lose everything. God was going to bring it all down. And that's actually going to be the subject of the next point that we're going to have. So we're going to move on to number three. We've seen justification of judgment, aim of the attack. Now we're going to look at the alert to the aristocracy. Aristocracy. I've been on Disney Plus too much. I'm afraid I'm going to say Aristocats. So if I do, just 
just uh, don't pay attention to that, all right? Everybody wants to be. So in case you're wondering why I titled this message, uh, Fat Cats and Fat Cows, you're about to hear. This is going to be... This is going to be the, the place where you understand why that title uh, came in. Uh, let's read Amos 4, 1 through 3. Prepare yourself. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you. When they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. And you shall go through the breaches, each one straight ahead. You shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. Pretty wild stuff, right? Even for Bible standards. Uh, so what we have here is a prophetic word from God, a judgment to a very specific ultra-elite group of people that have bothered him. Okay? Why? So the cows of Bashan are the targets here. That's, that's all we know first. Bashan was an area, it was a very fertile area, choice land east of Galilee. So who are the cows? You know, there's times in ministry when it's wise to just read from the commentary. And uh, my very official and scholarly New American commentary says thus of the cows of Bashan. These were upper class women who nagged their husbands to bring more and more to satisfy their thirst. It is likely that the term cows of Bashan was simply a figure of speech for women whose every desire was being abundantly met. I didn't write that, okay? So you had ultra-wealthy families living in their ivory summer houses in the mountains of Samaria who had acquired wealth through exploitation of the poor. The women, these women, not all women, these women, spent their days on the couch eating bonbons, sipping on wine that they acquired by manipulating and pressuring their husbands to go and get more for them. This probably was some holdover from Jezebel's time because as I think about the narrative back when we studied Elijah, Jezebel was a very big manipulator of King Ahab. And so that's probably something that stuck in the culture because it sounds like that. This idea of the aristocrats living in their Aspen ski lodge to, on, built on slave dollars, squeezed out of the poor, really, really upset God. And he wasn't having it anymore. The fat cats had become fat cows. And in order to satisfy the urge of the wealthy to acquire more and more and more, they sent their husbands out to do raids and shake down the poor so that they could have more. What does God say is going to happen to these aristocrats? He says, there's coming a day when you're going to be led away with hooks. And we know from history, this was indeed an Assyrian practice, that they would string up their defeated foes with hooks and march them out of the city with harpoons in their skin. So, what's the point here? You really can't just go about your life as a Christian and trample your way to the top and expect God to be okay with it. You can't gain wealth by dishonest means, shady business practices, anything that remotely seems like you're exploiting people and expect that God will let you off the hook. In fact, he might put you on the hook. He knows. He sees. This Christian life that we, that we have where we seek to follow Christ, we seek to imitate Christ, you know it's not limited to the show, the production here within these four walls? You understand that? This is not a production that we put on 
when you enter these doors and you keep it up, maybe if you talk to church members during the week, but other than that, you pretty much run your life and do what you want to do. Your personal life, your business life, your work life, God sees it all. He sees it all. God hates it when people take advantage of each other and lie and cheat and steal. That's what Satan does. That's not what the children of light are to do. So thinking about this, a couple questions popped into my mind. Can you be a faithful, wealthy Christian? I think yes. I've known people who've made a lot of money in business just because they were good at what they did. And I've known some of those same people to give more away in secret than anyone knows. As a pastor, you get kind of privy to what things people do. You kind of see things going on. There's people that you don't even know in life that have given secretly that you'll never know until you get to heaven. A lot of those people were wealthy people that gave of their abundance. There's a man that I know who has a successful business. He's an honest guy. He sells trailers, and he has for years. And he's made a lot of money honestly doing business. He has secretly financed the building of several church buildings all over South America, supported pastors, bought food for orphans. His honest business provided that, and there's nothing wrong with that. But there's a difference between that and say, let's say, what's something that we could say happening right now where people are being exploited? Taking an illegal immigrant who you know is trying to lay low, paying them peanuts for a difficult job that deserves more pay, and threatening to call immigration on them if they ever act up. That happens all the time, doesn't it? That happens all the time. There's a lot of people out there picking fruit in fields that are being exploited while some fat cat gets richer and richer. That's what we're talking about. That was happening all over Israel. You know, I was thinking about some things as I was looking at this passage. This will sound remotely political, all right? But I'm going to do it anyway because I'm not afraid, all right? So I think that we can honestly say, because this is relevant. This is in Amos, all right? So I didn't just make this up. I think we can honestly say that God despises two class systems. Two class systems. I I think everything... Everything about studying Amos has shown me that. We hear a lot about oppressed and oppressor, which is really just communism. That's all it is. Communism is a two-class system. It's been responsible for some of the uh, most damage, destruction, and death our world has ever seen. And I think God despises it because it's exactly what God warned about in Amos. Aristocrats at the top exploiting the poor masses. Youth and college students, listen, listen to me. You're going to hear all the wonderful things about communism when you go to school. But understand this. Communism levels the playing field by making everyone poor except the aristocrats at the top. But that's not limited to just communism. I think God hated the system of slavery that resulted in wealthy elites taking advantage of slave labor so that they could build bigger barns and live on bigger plantations. I think God hated the old feudal system that vassals and lords and the nobility taking the land and not letting people live on their own land. I think God hates governments that levy unjust tax burdens on people to fund the restriction of those people's freedoms. So let me cut to the point. I think, I thought a lot about this, all right? I'm not just saying it. I think God is a fan of the existence of a middle class. You know, there will always be poor. There will always be wealthy. 
But the middle class tend to be free people who are harder to oppress and take advantage of because they have the means to support themselves and defend themselves against the upper class. And if the government is not going to be, we all wish it would be a theocratic rule of Jesus Christ on the throne, right? But if it's not going to be that right now, if we have to wait till that comes, I think the Christian position ought to be that government should be as limited as possible. This will ensure, this is not political, this will ensure that fewer people are exploited and oppressed by the elites of society, which is what God hated most about the cows of Bashan. Okay? So, let's rehash. Just because you're wealthy doesn't mean you're evil. You need to hear that. Upper class folk want to come to CHBC? Come on. Come on. Just because you're poor doesn't mean you're righteous. You get no bonus points for being poor. No sympathy points. No, none of that. However, Jesus did say, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because with great power comes great temptation. The wealthy elites of Israel, unchecked because no one could stop them. They were in the government. They were in the temples. They controlled everything. They were running rampant over the poor, and God was not going to take it any longer. So we've seen the justification of judgment. We've seen the aim of the attack. We've seen the alert to the aristocracy. And lastly, we see this point, number four, the contempt of the counterfeit. The contempt of the counterfeit. If you want parentheses, you can put religion after that. That's what we're talking about. With great wealth and prosperity, which they had at the time, came great opulent counterfeit religion. It had all the pomp and frills of true worship, but it was dead inside. We're going to read as we finish Amos 4, 4 through 5. Hear this through the lens of sarcasm. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened, and proclaim free will offerings. Publish them, for you so love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. Clearly dripping in sarcasm, right? Come to the temple in sin, verse 4 says. You bring your sacrifices and tithes right on schedule, Israel. Oh, the offering box is full. The altar has the smoke rising up from the burnt offering. There's always smoke in the temple. Things are good, right? Bring all your offerings and shout and holler. Shout and holler when you drop a dollar. That's all you got to do. Whenever y'all pass those black uh, little offering boxes back there, just shout it out next time. Hundred dollars! And you just put it right in there. All right? That's what this is all about, right? We want to know that. I want to know. We ought to know. (laughs) Just joking, by the way. This was a rebuke. This was a rebuke of the false religion that had become commonplace in Israel. The temples looked like copies of the Jerusalem temple, but it was a syncretistic religion. That means when you combine two religions, you lose the flavor of both. In the end, you create a new monster. It was a syncretistic religion combined with Baalism. Also, the people had no evidence, though they were going through all these motions. They were tithing. They were doing their praise and worship. They were smoking the brisket on the grill, the altars. 
their lives were unchanged. It was just what we call today civil religion. It was just, just civil religion. These temples or churches, to use our vernacular, they were big, they were beautiful, they were busy, they had big budgets. There's the, the four B's of church growth. They had lots going on. They were well-maintained, and they were accommodating to everybody's views. Oh, you don't believe like we believe? Come on in. Whatever. They received that exploitation money with the elites on the mountains. They celebrated their big, fat tithe checks. They dropped them in, scalped off the backs of the poor. Want to worship Yahweh and Baal? Come on in. We accept everyone. Come as you are. Worship however you want. That's not what we do here. This is a powerful reminder to us today that actually none of those things, big, beautiful, busy, and budgets, have anything to do with what Jesus thinks of your church. None of those things really matter. In fact, these churches in Amos' day, were they had those things, and they were on the hit list of God to destroy with fire. You might say, but pastor, I thought, I thought the Bible says that the gates of hell can't prevail against the church. Well, that's right, but you have to remember that is not true of syncretistic, accommodating churches that will believe anything. Churches with state-sponsored, state-approved Bibles, state-approved preachers aren't real churches. Churches in liberal, mainline denominations with beautiful brick downtown buildings and stained glass that don't preach the gospel aren't true churches. Social gospel churches and woke churches aren't true churches. They've lost the gospel. They are religious facades with the appearance of churchianity. But the true church built upon the rock that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, can rightly claim the promise that upon that rock he built his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We certainly want this church to be that. We want this church to be that. We want this church to be nothing like the description of Israel's churches at the time. Those who were in the crosshairs of God's judgment. We want this church to be full of authentic worship from the heart, focused on not appearances, other people keeping track of what you're doing. We want this to be focused on the heart of the gospel and of missions to this community. We want to live and work by honest means. We want to offer relief to the poor and those burdened through no fault of their own. Plug, food drive, coming up soon. We want to respond when God calls us to repent because we believe we are capable of being disciplined by God. You read that, didn't you, Eric? Didn't I hear that? We are capable, a la Hebrews 12, of, as Christians, being disciplined by God. Israel thought it wasn't possible for them to ever be disciplined because they were chosen. I am chosen, not forsaken. They just sang that and ran around in circles and kept sinning and no, nothing changed. So they took... That thought, they ran with it, and they sinned and sinned and sinned deeper, and nothing happened. You ever have a moment like that, maybe in your life you're not proud of, where you push a boundary, you know you ought not push. You cross a line you shouldn't push. And then there's kind of this, oh, nothing happened. You're waiting for the lightning to strike you or something. You're waiting for that hand of God to reach through the clouds, you know, and just hit you on the back of the head. But a strange thing happens sometimes in your life when you cross a boundary you ought not cross. Sometimes the strangest thing of all is nothing happens. Or maybe the stranger thing of all is that maybe your life actually improves in some way. And you think, oh, huh, 
I guess it doesn't matter how I live. I can just keep telling God, I love you on Sunday. Then I can go out and do whatever I want because it doesn't seem like he's going to hurt me. He's not going to do anything. This is exactly what they did. They tested God's patience, and they pushed him, and they pushed him, and they pushed him. See, we read this, and we think, dang, man, God was harsh. Woo! But to go to the sovereign monarch of the universe and say, what you going to do about it, son? That's what they did. That's what they were doing. They said, what are you going to do? I know you said this. You sent us Elijah and Elisha. By the way, if they can't turn something around, how dark is it? I'll never be as good as Elijah and Elisha. Neither will you. So church, we have a chance. You have a chance in your life to respond to that at first small pinprick of God's Holy Spirit drawing you to himself in love. Because that's how it starts. You don't just jump straight up to Amos the lion's roaring. That's not step number one. You have a chance for God when he draws you to himself in that still small voice, that conviction that you feel in your soul because you're a spirit-filled Christian, that little thing that's just pulling you and saying, hey, turn it around, turn it around. If you sense in your life, Christian, the need to daily repent of your sin and turn to Christ and be sanctified and seek him, count that as the kindness of God in your life. And don't assume it will always be there. Don't take advantage of God's grace. Repent and return to him the first time. Feel that pain. Pull your hand off the stove. Treat God as if he really will discipline. Because as we heard read, he disciplines those whom he loves. Loves, just like a good father. Pray with me.